Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Buddy Miller's recording of That's How I Got to Memphis, which was written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Tom T. Hall. Known as the storyteller, the Grammy winner landed 35 songs in the top 10 on Billboard's country chart between 1965 and 1996. Many of those featured Hall as both writer and artist, including Homecoming, Me and Jesus, Ravishing Ruby, That Song is Driving Me Crazy, I Like Beer, and the number one hits A Week in a County Jail, The Year Clayton Delaney Died, Old Dog's Children and Watermelon Wine, Country Is, I Care, Faster Horses, and I Love, which also became a hit on the pop chart. Tom T. Hall songs that hit the top five for other artists include Hello Vietnam by Johnny Wright, How I Got to Memphis and Margie's at the Lincoln Park Inn by Bobby Bear, If I Ever Fall in Love with a Honky Tonk Girl by Farron Young, Pool Shark by Dave Dudley, You Always Come Back to Hurting Me by Johnny Rodriguez, I'm Not Ready Yet by George Jones, Little Bitty by Alan Jackson, and Harper Valley PTA, which Jeannie C. Riley took to the number one spot on both the country and pop chart, making her the first woman to achieve that feat. Hall was named NSAI Songwriter of the Year in 1972, was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1978, joined the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2008, was honored with the Academy of Country Music's Poets Award in 2010, and earned the prestigious BMI Icon Award in 2012. Well, I want to take this moment at the top of today's uh, episode to dispel a rumor that I think might start getting around, particularly after today's interview, uh, because you did this interview on your own with Tom T. Hall. Yep. Uh, I wasn't there. Um, and, and I know that the word might start getting around that, that we're splitting up or right. that, that one or both of us is going solo and just, just want to let everybody know that's not happening. Yeah, I'm not going solo. We're still very much, we are songcraft. It's just that, you know, exploring our, our uh, talents uh, outside yeah. of the partnership only makes the partnership stronger. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, this was kind of like the the middle initial conversation. Scott B. Bomar sat down with Tom T. Hall. The T versus the B. Yeah, there wasn't much of a place for me in that. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I understand. And also, I've, I've been trying out some of my own kind of side voice projects. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Yeah, I've been... Um, sometimes I'll just go buy birthday cards uh, at the store and, and read them aloud and, and record that. <laughs> um, and I hear you're getting good at that. I'm I'm incredibly good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in reality, uh, I happened to be in Nashville last May um, and uh, had the opportunity to speak to Tom T. Hall. And uh, you don't you don't pass up that. chance. You don't pass up the chance. I didn't want to be like, well, you know, Paul's not in town right now. So we're just going to take a take a hard pass on that. Right. Um, We don't operate that way. No, that's not how it's for. It's for the greater good. It is for the enjoyment of the listeners. So not to rub it in, but I got to go out to uh, Tom T. Hall's farm and uh, hang out with him for uh, a long morning which was yeah. awesome the this is a long this is a deluxe bonus length episode of songcraft but the actual conversation was much longer even than what you're going to hear and uh sitting and talking to Tom T Hall is the equivalent of 
like sitting by a fireplace with a warm <laughs> cup of cocoa like right. is just very pleasant to be in his presence and even in like some of just like the sonic quality of the interview i can hear your voice is sort of resonating in the great halls of his home <laughs> which I, I just assume is like kind of this beautiful veneered oak and if it's not don't tell me otherwise because i i, I like to picture it that way but that it's a place that's made for storytelling, maybe like sort of an indoor woodsy amphitheater. I think the echoiness is more of a testament to uh, you usually work the recording equipment right. and I don't really know what I'm doing uh, when you're not there. So, Well, this is um, what happens when you yeah. do conversations without me. But. Yeah, so, you know, I'm going to do my best not to uh, have a conversation without <laughs> you. But if if someone of Tom T. Hall's legendary status should uh, arise, I will, I will totally uh, betray you again. You know what? And I, I would do the same thing. So. Yeah. Well, at least we're on the same page. Yeah, no problem here. Well, um, let's hear it. Yep. If you love somebody enough, you follow them wherever they go. Mr. Hall, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's a long way. You live in California? I do, but I grew up here in Nashville. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah. Well, so. you're home now, so you can chill. Yeah, Exactly. Well, I understand that you grew up in Kentucky with a father who was a bricklayer um, and also a Baptist preacher. Right. Um, so he was kind of a craftsman, uh, but also a man of ideas. And, and I think that you know, being a songwriter kind of requires that balance of ideas and, and craftsmanship to mold those ideas. And, and I'm curious, how do you think um, the example of your father uh, might have shaped your approach to being a creative person or a songwriter? Well, uh, at, at the beginning of your question, my father was, a, uh, he wasn't a bricklayer, he worked at a brick plant. Oh, okay. You know, where they made brick. Sure. So, well, a little distinction there. Yeah. And uh, my father was a, a Baptist, you know, minister, and there wasn't as much money in religion in those days as there is now. So he made more right. money at the brick plant. You right, know. right. Uh, at that time, I think religion was a cause, hmm. you know, and uh, now I don't know. It's better organized. Uh, and my father was a storyteller. Hmm. He uh, had a repertoire of stories that he would tell and uh, they had a beginning and a middle and a punchline and uh, they were a lot like songs, but you know, he was doing this uh, orally and uh, right. conversationally, but we would come home for holidays when we had moved away and and after, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or something, we'd all sit around and we would ask him to tell these stories again, hmm. which I thought was sort of interesting because, you know, once the fellas told you a story, you go on and see what kind of story you got the next time you see him, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but he had this repertoire, we would sit there and ask him to tell these stories, and he was just a master storyteller. I put some of his songs in, uh, into, um, his stories into songs. Hmm. Like what, what uh, would be some song of those songs? Turn It On, Turn It On, Turn It On. Mm-hmm. Which is about a, well, you know, either listen to it or I can tell you about it. <laughs> uh, about a fellow who uh, didn't, uh, go into the Second World War. Right. And uh, he was, at that time, they called him slackers. Hmm. But he had some sort of a physical defect that, you know, he couldn't go in the Army. Right. But he didn't like the reputation of a slacker. So he got up one morning and went down and shot everybody he knew, you know. that hmm. uh, That's basically the story. And at the end, they 
the preacher asked him if he had anything he wanted to say. He said he was in the electric chair. He said, yeah, I turned on. Hmm. So that's what the song's about. Yeah, wow. But it's a true story. Wow. They put old John in the electric chair. They shaved his ankles and his head. The preacher said, son, you got something to say. In a minute you're going to be dead. John said, I ain't no coward. And the people know that I won't run. Then Johnny smiled up at the warden and said, Turn it on, turn it on, turn it on. Well, you worked as a, a radio DJ for several years before you ever came to Nashville. And, you know, I would imagine that that's a profession that gives you an opportunity, obviously, to hear a lot of songs, but you also have the opportunity to get a lot of feedback on those songs from, from the radio audience. Um, how did that era of your life um, kind of shape your understanding of what makes for a good song that, that people will respond to? Yeah, I think, I think that uh, that's an, an osmosis thing. You learn just by, you know, osmosis. And you're sitting there and you're hearing these songs all day and you're, Hearing how, and you don't have an option that you right. to listen because you <laughs> got to know when they're over and you can read some commercials. Yeah, and uh, you know Waylon Jennings and uh, Bill Anderson and uh, a lot of guys were disc jockeys before they were, and I think they learned a lot. You know, yeah, just sitting listening to those hits, and we didn't play anything but the hits. You know, the rest of them get in the wastebasket. So right. You're sitting listening to the hit after hit. I think there's something to that. Mm. I hadn't thought about that much. Uh, maybe on an occasion or two, but uh, I was a disc jockey, and I also wrote copy. I was a copywriter writing the commercials. Right. Well, a 30-second commercial with no recording equipment back in those days. We, you know, and uh, we couldn't record the commercials, so they were all live, and they were in a book in right. front of you, and you'd flip the page, and... There was a lady there that kept the book up current, and so you'd play a record and flip the page and read the next commercial and do a little rip-and-run news, you know, from the Associated Press Wire. And right. So my job was, I, had, I worked uh, from, uh, I was a signer. I've I'm, I'm always been a morning person, and I, I, I was on the air from daylight or whenever they turned the radio station on. These were not 24-hour radio stations. Right. And uh, we, I, I would go over and sign the radio station on, and I would play records till nine, and then I would be there the rest of the day writing, you know, mm. radio copy. Yeah, yeah. Thirty sec, uh, half a page was thirty seconds. We didn't time any of this stuff. Right. Uh, and uh, a full page was, uh, you know, a minute commercial. Right. Right. So. Uh, I learned a lot by that because I learned a lot about brevity. You know, you've got, uh, you know, you're doing a landscaping commercial or a used car lot commercial or I don't know what, you know, whatever. You had to get that on uh, into 30 seconds. Right. And the songs are that way. You can, you know, there have been a few hits. I had one of them called Old Dogs, which I think was over four minutes, and then El Paso. Yeah. I think those records were probably hits because... You could put them on and go to the restroom and get back before they were over, you know, <laughs> right. or go out and get a cup of coffee. Right, right. And uh, <laughs> so disc jockeys like those long songs. Right, they kept right. a couple of them around, you know. Yeah. 
And I said, here's my restroom song over there, you know, El Paso, you know, it went, went on forever. So, right, that's fine. Uh, so I'm, were I'm you... giving away some disc jockey trade secrets here. Right. You know? <laughs> if you hear a guy playing a long song a lot, right. you, you know. You know what he's doing. Got a, kid, got a kidney probably. Right. You know? <laughs> well, in December of 1963, Jimmy C. Newman hit the Billboard country chart with his single DJ for a Day, which became your first hit as a songwriter when it entered the top ten. So here's what I would like to do If I could have my way I'd like to be a DJ for a day um, And that was a song that he recorded before you actually moved to Nashville. So tell us how that opportunity came about. Well, there's a long story there that I'll make short if I'm capable of that. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm kind of a windbag. Hey, that's fine. But uh, anyway, uh, I was at the radio station, and uh, a young man from Nashville came in and said, hey, here's a song I wrote. And I said, well, we've already got that record. You know, you don't need to promote it now. It's, it's a big hit record. And he said, well, I just go around, you know, promoting it because I wrote it. I said, oh, really? I said, oh, that's wonderful, you know. Well, I've got my guitar sitting behind my desk where I'm writing all these radio commercials. And yeah. He said, you play that guitar? And I said, yeah, I play the guitar. And he said, you write songs? I said, yeah, I've been writing songs a long time. He said, uh, would you like me to take some of them to Nashville for you? And I said, yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> so I, I got, uh, you know, at that time, uh, I found a little tape recorder, and I, you know, put the songs down and gave him the lyrics, you know, and he, and I got a call from Nashville, and they said, hey, um, we like these songs, we'd like to publish them. I said, well, that's wonderful. He said, uh, and uh, Jimmy Key of New Key's Music in Nashville, who was Jimmy, uh, well, Jimmy Newman owned part of the publishing company with right. Dave Dudley. Okay. There were three of them involved in this publishing company. So it was New, New Key's Publishing, is that? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Newman, and, Newman, Newman and Key. And Jimmy Key. Okay. Yeah. That's it. where New yeah, Keys yeah. came from. So they said, uh, we want to ask you a question. I said, sure. And they said, did this young man who brought these songs down here help you write them? I said, no. I said, he just, you know, I said, I'd never seen the guy. I didn't have any time. Right. He was only there for 15 minutes. I didn't. Right. have time to write any songs with him. <laughs> he said, well, that's what we thought. Said, we just wanted to let you know that he didn't write the song he brought to you that day. The FBI is looking for him. I said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> um, and uh, they said, if you, uh, he, they said, he moved into an apartment, this bogus songwriter guy that the FBI is looking for, had moved into an apartment and uh, when he went to his mailbox, there's a bunch of BMI checks in there. Hmm. Ooh, because right. the guy who moved didn't give BMI his change of address right. or he didn't get it or something. Huh. He started cashing them. Wow. So that's, uh, uh, I don't know, interstate fraud or something. You know? Right. I'm not a lawyer, but anyway. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, I was discover, discovered by a criminal. Wow. You know. <laughs> I was at going to Roanoke College on the GI Bill. I was studying to, uh, creative writing and journalism on the GI Bill, and uh, I stayed there for three or four years. And 
But anyway, uh, I got a phone call. I'd been sending these songs to Nashville through the mail. Right. And uh, I got a call one day, and they said, would you like to come to Nashville and write songs for a living? I said, oh, I guess so. I said, you know, <laughs> I'm in school up here, you know. And they said, well, think it over. They said, uh, and one more question. They said, could you live on $50 a week? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, it's worked so far, you know. I, <laughs> And uh, they said, well, uh, come on down. I said, no, wait a minute. I said, I want to come down on January 1st. Now, this was along about August or September. Right. I said, I want to come down on January 1st. And that way, I'm terrible at dates. I, I can't remember. Everything happened three weeks ago as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, <laughs> right. No good at that at all. I said, I'll come down January 1st. In case anybody ever asked me, I'll be able to remember that, you know. <laughs> right. January, New Year's Day, so. Right. So I got here, uh, I left up there New Year's Eve and got here, you know, January 1st. And well. Walked into town and been here ever since, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's how I got to Nashville, you know. Yeah, right. Unlike Memphis. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's another story, yeah. Well, in 1964, uh, Dave Dudley gave you another top 10 hit with the song Mad. And then between 1965 and 1967, Jimmy C. Newman hit the Billboard chart with seven more of your songs, including the top 10 hits Artificial Rose and Back Pocket Money. I believe you were obviously writing songs for the company, but by this point you had moved to Nashville. And I understand you spent some time actually pitching songs and kind of working as a song plugger yeah, for yeah, them as yeah. well. Um how did that in, in experience kind of influence your ideas about songwriting and what you really wanted to do? Well, we haven't, uh, we've been doing this conversation for a few minutes, but we haven't met Tom T. Hall yet. You know, I was Tom Hall mm. at the time. And I got to Nashville and uh, I wanted to write songs like they were writing. You know, I, I, you know, I was in the military eight years yeah. before I came to Roanoke on a GI Bill. And uh, then I was, uh, you know, disc jockey for a while and uh, all of those careers. But I got to Nashville, and I just got me a, I got me a little room on uh, South Street there in Nashville, right off 16th Avenue. And right. I set up a typewriter. I had this great American work ethic. I said, if you're going to do something, you got to get up in the morning and go to work. Right. I had a little typewriter, Royal typewriter, which I still have, and a microphone and a Wallensack uh, recorder, a little, little small reel. You could only get one song on there. Right. And an ashtray and a coffee cup. And I would get up in the morning, and I never, after I got out of the military, I never quit doing my exercises in the morning, you right. know. And, and, about three months I was out of the military and I said, whoa, I don't think I'm in balance here. There's something wrong. <laughs> so I went back to doing the, what they call a daily dozen. Hmm. And I did do it for 55 years and I'm too old. I saved my, um, uh, all my energy to get from the couch to the coffee pot, you know. <laughs> so, so anyway, I had this industry. I'd get up in the morning. So I was trying to write what Nashville wanted. When I right. was in radio, I was writing what the, you know, the advertisers wanted, so now I'm in the same mode 
Yeah. Without being aware of it at the time. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to write like Bill Anderson, Harlan Howard, and Hank Conkrin, and I was terrible at it, you know. I just, I just making up these songs, you know. Yeah, yeah. And th this is a good story. Here, this is a good songwriting story, and nobody would probably believe it. All of the big stars used to come to Nashville from all over the country. Right. And check into a little uh, motel, you know, uh, up on uh, the West End in Nashville. Hmm. And they would just check in and lie back on the bed with a bottle of Jack Daniels, and you could walk in the room, no security guards or anything, just... They would call all the publishers and say, I'm in room 405 at the Quality Court Inn and uh, yeah. send me some songs. So you just get a bunch of tapes together and go up and sit there and play them for them and then take them or leave them, and, you know. Yeah, wow. And then when they got enough songs together, they'd go down to the studio and record them. <laughs> so you didn't have to hunt these people down to pitch them a song. They'd right. come in and say, bring me all your best songs, you know. Huh. So that's, uh, that was part of the experience. And then other times you'd go to the producer's office and play for him, you know. Right. So it was better to go to the artist, you know. You could sit and look at him and see right. what the reaction was. But yeah. the producers, they'd sit and listen and say, nah, nah, nah. And you'd get about, you know, 15 seconds into a song. And they said, no, no, no. And you'd hit the button and go to the next song, you know. And then, right. <laughs> and then they didn't like anything. They'd send you on your way and you pick up your wall and sack and... Right. <laughs> Down the road, you know. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't work that way anymore. No, no. I mean, you got to go to 25 people, you know, to right. to send uh, somebody a Christmas card because you don't know where to find them, you know. Right. But I was pitching songs around Nashville, and I was taking some to Jerry Kennedy mm -hmm. at Mercury Records. And God, he loved these songs, you know. And uh, what I had done... Uh, my wife, Miss Dixie, who passed away a year and a half ago. Yeah. Today is her birthday, by the oh, way. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so I I was driving out to where we were living in a little house in Brentwood, Tennessee, just outside Nashville. And uh, Stonewall Jackson, mm -hmm. the great Stonewall Jackson, not the general, the, the songwriter, <laughs> the singer. The singer. And, uh, he was out working on his pickup, and he waved me down. And I, you know, pulled over to the side of the road. I said, Stonewall, what's happening? He said, I want you to write me a song. He said, I'm doing a prison album. And now you, I want you to write me a song. I said, well, I'll see what I can do, you know. He said, okay. So I went on around the corner and uh, went in Miss Dixie. I guess was fixing some lunch. I don't know. But I said, hey, I just ran into Stonewall Jackson. And uh, he said he's doing a prison album and wants a prison song. I said, I don't know anything about being in prison. I don't, right. never been. She said, well, you've been in jail. Why don't you write about that? <laughs> and that's where Tom T. Hall came from. Because what right. happened, I uh, wrote a week in a country jail. Mm. Now, this is where Tom T. Hall came from. That song went to number one, you know. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, I got to thinking. I said, I've been trying to write like Bill Anderson, Harlan Howard, and right. Hank Cochran, you know, people I admired, you know, sure. my heroes, but I'm no good at that. I said, after a week in the country jail, which I didn't have to 
create. I just had to relate. You mm-hmm. understand yeah, the difference? Yeah. I just made it meter and rhyme. Right. And it went to number one. I said, hey, maybe people care about where you've done, been, and places you've been, and people you met, and you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And uh, then I became Tom T. Hall. Jerry Kennedy yeah. recorded me in. Uh, I think that was my first number one song with Jake. Yeah, yeah. Well, next morning that old judge took every nickel that I had. And he said, son, let this teach you not to race. The jailer's wife was smiling from the window as I left. In 30 minutes, I was out of state. So I just started writing about things that had done. But then I then. That's where Tom T. Hall can, mm. comes in. Yeah, yeah. There was really no Tom T. Hall before that. Kind of yeah. found your voice. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was, uh, oh, uh, Chris Dofferson said it best. He said, you know, in the early days, Chris and I hung out together. And, right. And um, and Chris said, you know, Tom T. is uh, a great songwriter impersonating a hack. <laughs> and I said, and somebody said, you should be offended. <laughs> I said, well, you kidding? Chris is my best friend and best critic. I said, he is dead on. You know? <laughs> right. I'm trying to write. I'm just hacking along behind all these other great, these guys that can write these great romantic songs. Right, you know, I right. I wanted to tell stories. Yeah. So, well, I think that, you know, you mentioned Chris Christofferson. You and Chris and a handful of other guys were kind of changing what was considered the normal way of writing songs in Nashville in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and, you know, obviously, Harper Valley PTA was an enormous hit for you. Um, number one on both the country and the pop charts, Jeannie C. Riley as the artist, It was number one on all the charts. Yeah, I mean, just across the board. It was number board. one, R&B, easy listening, wow. pop, country. and Right, right. But, you know, I think even the, the lyrics of that song, I mean, there's a, it addresses hypocrisy in a very real way. It's kind of pointed, you know, yeah, it's yeah. not your typical, what would have been a, a, a traditional country song maybe in the years prior. And then you have the nerve to tell me, you think that as a mother I'm not fit. Well, this is just a little Peyton place and Talk about kind of the genesis of that song and what impact just having that kind of enormous success well, it, it has on your career. Well, it came from the same place a week in the country jail. This was an incident that took place in my hometown. Hmm. And it was a real person. I changed all the names. You know, right. To have to keep them, send them all, send them all royalty checks, you know. I didn't, right. And, uh, and so it was a real incident that took place in my hometown. Wow. Now, this area in which we are sitting and where I live, this area here is called the Harpeth Valley mm-hmm. uh, area because it's the Harpeth River goes down through Franklin here. You know, right. We're just outside Nashville as we speak. And uh, I wanted the name for this town, so I'm coming back to Nashville one day and uh, out to Brentwood where we were living, and I saw the Harpeth Valley District. And I said, huh, oh, that's a good name for my high school. 
fictitious name, yeah, yeah. a real event, you know. And so I called it Harper Valley PTA. Hmm. Yeah. You know. Wow. <laughs> so that's where the name of the song came yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. But I was trying to keep it as real as possible. I wanted there to be a real Harper Valley somewhere. You right, know? right, right. You had to yeah. be careful you don't go over that making up stuff business, you know. So right. my, my muse wanted to have a real Harper Valley. And yeah, yeah. I suppose, I don't know. Kind of a, almost a reporter's kind of instinct. Yeah, well, I studied journalism, and I studied creative writing, and I started reading when I was about mm, nine or ten years old. I loved to read. Hmm. I just read everything I could find. And, uh, yeah. What were some of your, your literary heroes? Well, they were the, they were the, the writers of the time. There's Sinclair Lewis, who was one of my favorites, who... Uh, Main Street and uh, Harper Valley PTA are pretty much the same story, hmm. you know. Yeah. One was written by a great literary writer, and the other one's written by a hillbilly songwriter. So <laughs> quite a distance in between us there, but we got the same story told. <laughs> right, right. I sold more books and he uh, records than he did books, I think. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. uh, Sinclair Lewis, uh, Hemingway, uh, Fitzgerald, Thomas Wolfe, uh, you know, all the people you, well, I had a lot of required reading in, in at Roanoke, too, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Hemingway, especially, I loved his uh, brevity, you know. Right. He, he said one time that uh, he got paid 10 cents a word when he was a journalist, and uh, he got paid just as much for the word town as he did for Metropolis. <laughs> And so that's a good, you know. Good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, thinking about approaching songwriting from a from a, a literary mindset. Um, in 1969, Bobby Bear had a top five hit with Margie's at the Lincoln Park Inn, yeah. um, which is a song that you also recorded on one of your own records. But for those who maybe aren't familiar, it's a song about a man who's trying to stay on the straight and narrow and, and not cheat. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And the end of the song has this great line. My wife's baking cookies to feed to the bridge club again. I'm almost out of cigarettes and Margie's at the Lincoln Park Inn. And I don't know whether this guy is just fidgety and he's going through all the cigarettes and he's staying on the straight and narrow, or if he's almost out of cigarettes and that's going to be his cover to leave to go get another pack of them and go see Margie at the Lincoln Park Inn. And I love the ambiguity of that. It feels to me like, like a, a short story in the context of a song. And I feel like you really see that literary quality kind of coming through that it, it doesn't hit you over the head. Well, you know, I've, I've, uh, I'm going to let you off the hook here. Uh, I, um, I have written a lot of songs. I didn't make up Marjorie at the Lincoln Park Inn either, you know. Hmm. I knew a guy who was going through this, Yeah. you know. And I was writing about him and I was writing about Marjorie, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't make that up. It's a real story. Yeah. But uh, I hate to blow your cover here, but or the literary cover on this, but and I'm glad you heard the song the way you wanted to hear it because that's the way it should be listened to. But the cigarettes were his ticket out of the house. Hmm. You know, you're yeah. right. You're right to, yeah. to suspect that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, I think that's maybe what most people heard. Yeah. I don't know. I've had a lot of songs that, that I just wrote down what happened, and then the reader, and uh, you know, when I wrote uh, Old Dog, Children, Watermelon, and Wine, the old gray black gentleman in that song was 65 years old. Right. It was three years later that I realized that he was telling me that he didn't need this job working in this bar. He was on Social Security by that time. Hmm. Right. So he was just killing time in that bar the way I was. He was just kind of helping out, maybe picking right. up a few tips or something. So. Yeah. 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 So I, a lot of those songs I've had explained to me, you know. Then. <laughs> right. Right. Well, kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying, you were sort of writing what you thought you were supposed to write, what Nashville wanted. Yeah. Um, you earned your first number one hit as a songwriter in 1965 with Johnny Wright's Hello Vietnam, uh, followed soon after by a Dave Dudley Top 5 called What We're Fighting For. Yeah. Um, both those songs are very kind of traditional, conservatively-minded, pro-war songs, kind of a response to the, to the growing anti-war sentiment yeah. that was occurring at the time. And I understand that you, in 1972, just a few short years later, were participate in the Democratic National Convention and you backed the presidential candidacy of George McGovern and um, obviously McGovern worked very hard to end the war in Vietnam so there was obviously some sort of shift happening in terms of your perspective in that era. I'd like to hear a little about that. Well I didn't back McGovern. I, I was on a show in Flamingo Park across from the convention in Miami Beach and uh, George Jones and Ray Price was on that show. Hmm. And I was not political. I had no political interest in anything. I don't think. I don't remember. <laughs> that was, a, I didn't have time for it, you know. Right. Trying to stay alive on $50 a week. Right. But at that time, I had some records out. But it was George Jones and Tammy Wynette, Ray Price, and me. And uh, we're working at Flamingo Park. And the theory was that we could attract all those hippies and yippies and yuppies or whatever over into Flamingo Park and they wouldn't tear up the convention, huh. which had happened in Chicago four years earlier, right, I think. Right, right. So the, the, there was a, it was a political ploy by the Democratic Party. Right. And they just booked the people they thought would draw a crowd, and I guess huh. I was one of them. So. Yeah, yeah. So the, the nature of your uh, political activism has been greatly overstated. Oh, gosh, yes, you know. I did have opinions about things. Sure. You know, I'm, you know, I'm an American citizen. I got an opinion, but uh, uh, there's a story that goes in there because after that show was over, I remember I went back to the hotel and met the old gentleman in the Old Dog's Children and Watermelon Wine. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And uh, he was... Uh, Sitting in the, well, it was just, well, you can listen to the song, you know. Yeah, yeah. It all happened, you know. Yeah, so the song is basically just the true story. Of well, your... yeah, it's just, you know, I didn't make it up. I just wrote it down, you know. Well. And I uh, got on a plane the next morning, and I wrote the lyrics on the back of a sick bag. I didn't have anything to write on. Huh. And, uh, and brought it back to Nashville and sang it for Jerry Kennedy, and he said, yeah, I like that, and, you know. The rest is little-known history, but history nonetheless. I was sitting... In Miami, pouring blended whiskey down When this old gray black gentleman Was cleaning up the lounge There wasn't 
anyone around except this old man and me. The guy who ran the bar was watching Ironsides on TV. Uninvited, he sat down and opened up his mind on old dogs and children and watermelon wine. Well, the late 60s, as you've mentioned, is, is when you became Tom T. Hall. Yeah. And you found your voice. You as a songwriter, but also, as you mentioned, Jerry Kennedy signed you. You became a, a recording artist. I think your first charting single was I Wash My Face in the Morning Dew. Right. Um, you had a top ten with the ballot of $40. As you mentioned, you hit number one with uh, A Week in a Country Jail, which was that real kind of turning point. So yeah. you've, you've established yourself as a successful songwriter. You're now also a successful um, recording artist, singing these songs in your own voice, which is a great way to hear them. One of the great songs from that era that I love is is Homecoming, um, which hit the top five. And again, kind of bucked tradition in a way of what country songwriting was about. You know, the the title is never said in the song. There's no chorus. No, it, it, it completely bucks convention. And, and I'm curious. And people who wanted to hear it didn't know what to request because I never mentioned Homecoming in the song. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but d- did you have a sense in, in that time did you think of yourself as a rule breaker somebody who was kind of purposefully playing with convention or just doing what came naturally no i was i was uh, i had found my voice and i i wrote a, a lot of songs and i don't know if i know what i'm talking about here because i'm not an expert at anything you know <laughs> i'm just wandering through life having a good time but uh homecoming was a a stream of consciousness song. I wrote several of those, and I would uh, be sitting usually alone and and uh, just start playing the guitar and talking to somebody. I don't know, my muse, I guess. Well, nobody's listening. So, and uh, before I got through, I had written this song, you know, and I uh, and then I never made any judgment about it. It never dawned on me that this title was never mentioned in the song hmm. and for some reason you know I didn't care anyway I just told the story and it had a beginning a middle and an end and then he said oh by the way if you see Barbara Walker that's where the romance came into it I guess yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I was criticized more for that song I was driving along one night on a road trip someplace and God I just spent my life doing that hmm. yeah, and it makes me want to take a nap thinking about it <laughs> But I uh, I was listening to the radio and there was a preacher talking about this guy, you know, and what a son of a bitch he was and a bad guy who had neglected his family. And I said, boy, this... And he was an all-night preacher. Yeah. Uh, and I'd hear him several times because my father was a preacher and I'd turn in and he could talk for an hour and a half and never say a damn thing. It was, it was <laughs> phenomenal... Uh, <laughs> Phenomenal uh, radio voice and everything. And the way he never made a point. But he was giving this guy the devil. And it turned out he was talking about homecoming and me. Hmm. About the guy in homecoming 
leaving his father and uh, not being there for his mother's funeral, abandoning his girlfriend, and right. hanging out in honky tonks and running around with half naked women in the car. And, uh, right. I thought, wow, man, that guy's listening to a song I didn't realize that he'd been written. You know? <laughs> But he turned it into a crusade, and I was the villain. <laughs> right. Somebody has to play the villain. <laughs> I don't know if I, it's a national radio show, huh. uh, but I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't very flattered by it, you know. <laughs> I would imagine not. Well, Dad, I gotta go. We gotta dance to work in Cartersville tonight. Let me take your number down. I'll call you, and I promise you, I'll write. Now you be good, don't be chasing all those pretty women that you know. And by the way, if you see Barbara Walker, tell her that I said hello. Well, even as your own artist career was taking off, you continued to have hits by other artists in 1970. Particularly, The Pool Shark was a number one hit for Dave Dudley. Uh, if I Ever Fall in Love with a Honky Tonk Girl was a top five hit for Farron Young. And, you know, everybody in Nashville has multiple Farron Young stories. I mean, he was a, a wild man and a character of, of legendary proportions. Um, in that era, were you a go back to the farm and hole away and write songs kind of guy? Or were you uh, go out with Farron and the guys and, uh, and have some fun kind of guy? I was a loner. Yeah. Know, I admit that, yeah. Because I got up at uh, five, or, as I still do. I get up when I, I sleep near a window. I always did. And, you know, I spent all that time in the military, eight years. You don't sleep till noon in the army. You know right, that. right. <laughs> Not allowed. And then I was a wake-up disc jockey every morning. Yeah. And so when I got to Nashville, I never changed my habits. I'd go to bed. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get up at daylight, drove people crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Nashville and I had two different lifestyles, you know. Just as I was going to bed, uh, the other writers in town were getting up. Right. <laughs> so I was a daylight writer, you know. And, right. <laughs> Somebody had to keep it going in the morning. Oh, it sounded like a, yeah, it sounded like an idea for a song, daylight writer. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, we talked a moment ago about how you got to Nashville. One of my favorite Tom T. Hall songs is How I Got to Memphis. Um, That was on your first album in 1969. It was a a number three single on the Billboard country chart for Bobby Bear in 1970. Daryl Dodd revived it as a top 40 hit in 1996. One of my favorite versions is probably Buddy Miller, who who does a killer version of it. Buddy nailed that song. Um, In fact, he uh, rescued it from oblivion, I think, in... uh, hmm. You know, it's been recorded more than any of my, my other songs. Has it really? Tell me about the, the inspiration for that song. I wanted to write a song about Nashville, you know. And Nashville is a, probably the worst name in the world for a town. It sounds like G-N-A-S-H, you know. It's got that Nash. <laughs> right. And you got to, if you're a songwriter, you know the difference. You know the words to stay away from. like Right. Words like hyperbole and... <laughs> <laughs> You know, exacerbate, which sounds like something out of Forty Shades of Grey or something, you know. So you got to be careful about the language. In Nashville, there's the best I know has never fit into a fit into a hit song, unless there's something out there I don't know about. Right. So it was about, uh, it's about being where you are, you know. Yeah. Nashville is just a, uh, just a name. It's not the name of a place so much as it is a 
a place in your life, you know. Right, right. I, I did do a little literary work there. Yeah, yeah. But I couldn't use Nashville because it doesn't fit in any. So it's just, and I love the word, the way they say it in Memphis, Memphis, you know. Yeah. Memphis. Yeah, and I yeah. just love it. It feels good. And uh, so I wrote how I got to Memphis. And yeah. It, it's about, you know, where you, it's where you are and what you're looking for. And we're always searching for something, you know. Mm. And it, it, in this situation, it was a girl, but it could have been a dream, you know, or an ambition. And you're always roaming. And I traveled. I never, you know, until I was got to Nashville, I never stayed in one town more than a year and a half, you know. I just like to, I had nothing I couldn't get in the trunk of my car. Wow. Never bought anything. Yeah. I would not let anybody give me. Somebody tried to give me a TV set one time. And I, and I was on a work in some town somewhere, and they said, I don't believe that it fit in the trunk of my car, you know, so. <laughs> Can't take it. So I was ready to leave town just on a minute's notice, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I did. I just loaded yeah. up and take off. And, yeah. Well, some of the album cuts um, that began to appear on your LPs in the early 70s dealt in honest ways with topics like disillusionment and and racism and being willing to kind of take a, an honest look at social problems. Um, I'm thinking of songs such as America the Ugly from the uh, Eyewitness Life album in 1970 or I Want to yeah. See the Parade from the 100 Children album, which is a, a great sort of uh, addressing the idea of racism in, in a creative way. Um, this was obviously a time where the nation was kind of going through the beginnings of, I guess, what they call the, the culture wars. Um, did you get responses from the fans to some of these songs that were kind of trying to get address some of these social issues that were um, <laughs> not necessarily yeah, well, there's welcoming? A, there's one funny story there. There's, there's, uh, I wrote a song called if, if You Hang Them All, You Get the Guilty. Right. Uh and I had a punchline on it that said, the last line in the song said, but remember, they're going to hang you too. Right. You know, if they decide you're guilty. You know, right. And so. <laughs> doing a bit of literary work there. Yeah. And there's some people who love that song and never heard the last line in it, you know. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> didn't catch well, the irony. So I missed that. Right. And uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, people are born and they do grow up in different cultures and uh, I don't know. Uh, I, as I say, I'm not an expert in anything and I'm not a political person. Mm. Uh, I voted one time <laughs> just to see what it was like in case I ever wrote a song about voting. <laughs> but, but I'm sort of like George Carlin, you know, don't vote, you just encourage your sons of bitches, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've never understood Racism. I've never understood color, you know. Uh, of all the problems we've got in the world, who gives a damn what color somebody is? Right. I mean, if they got a head, two arms, two legs, <laughs> they speak English. Who gives a shit, you know? It's like bitching about somebody's shirt, you know. They may have a black or brown or red face or something. Right. But uh, I get pissed off about the T-shirts more than I do the faces, you know. I said... <laughs> That's an ugly damn shirt there, you know. Right. So, but I never got I never got color. I, yeah. Uh, I'm not colorblind or anything. I know an African American, or you know, when I see one, I guess. Right. Right. But so you're just kind of writing 
right in your observations. Yeah, and once I just born, raised up like that, and I went in the military at a young age. I spent, uh, you know, eight years, and uh, most of my bosses were, uh, you know, African Americans or blacks or whatever you want to call them. And, uh, you know, they were in charge, so I said yes, sir. And, right, right. And some very wonderful people, you know. I got shot at a couple of times, and they missed, and that's the end of my war stories. So. <laughs> Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So. Right. Um, well, one of your classic albums is In Search of a Song, um, which came out in 1971. It, it featured the number one single of the year that Clayton Delaney died. A, a huge hit. I remember the year that Clayton Delaney died. Nobody ever knew it, but I went out in the woods and I cried. While I know there's a lot of big preachers that know a lot more than I do, but it could be that the good Lord likes a little picking too. I've always been fascinated in that song by the the trumpet flourishes because they they're unexpected. They they catch you by surprise when when you hear that song. It's you don't hear a lot of trumpet used that way in in country music from that era. Um, talk about how involved you were if you were involved with the arrangements of these songs that you were writing when you went to the studio did you bring some of those kind of ideas or zero really jerry kennedy produced me and if it weren't for jerry kennedy there would never have been a time to you all hmm. i couldn't get my songs recorded because they were too personal yeah well that would have run me out of town as a songwriter if i had made records and recorded these songs nobody would have ever heard them hmm. so that's the name of that tune yeah but uh, I went in one day and uh, we were making, you know, doing a session, one of my first or second. And I'm sitting in the control room listening to playback and it was over. And I said, Jerry, do you know how to punch all these buttons and all this stuff around here? And he turned around and said, no, I'm a producer. <laughs> and he said, I don't want you to ever find out either. <laughs> I said, okay. So. <laughs> Let him do his job, you do yours. <laughs> you know, I, so Jerry was the producer. Yeah. I'd usually go in with the Pig Hargis and Bob Moore. And, and uh, oh, I don't want to leave anybody out here. But Buddy, Buddy Harmon, you know, Ray Eddington. Right. And those people. And I'd just put down a song. I'd leave. And then Jerry would make a record out of it. Hmm. But I think where her, uh, Clayton Delaney came from, uh, Jimmy Rogers and Louis Armstrong made a record together one time in New York, and and uh, and uh, of course Louis was playing the trumpet, and right. Jimmy Rogers was singing. So I think I think that's where Kennedy got that. Said, you know, and what he did also after Kennedy made that record, he slowed it down a little bit. It's not in any key; it's in a crack. Hmm. Interesting. But he wanted to make it sound old timey, like an old seventy-eight. Yeah. And then he got Jimmy Rogers. Louis Armstrong trumpet on there and uh, Slide Dobro. And, yeah, yeah. But I never heard those records till they came out on the radio. Yeah. So I did whatever Kennedy told me. I never produced, you know. Yeah. I'm a, I, I am the world's worst producer. <laughs> I admit it. I cannot produce. Right. And uh, well, so I let other people do that. Yeah. Well, I've brought up uh, politics. The other thing you're not supposed to bring up is religion, so I'll do that too. Uh, I want to talk about your song, Me and Jesus, which was a, a top ten hit in 1972. Me and Jesus, I got our own thing going. Me and 
major concept of religious faith is the idea of community. And that song is kind of a declaration of independence in a way. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. Um, and I get the sense that you are uh, someone who is not particularly concerned with institutions per se, but I do get the sense that you're someone who values the idea of of authentic community. And I don't want to overanalyze the song, but yeah. um, speaking theologically, are those lyrics still an accurate reflection of your perspective now that we're nearly four and a half decades later? Well, you know, um, that was my mother's favorite expression. Hmm. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. That's it. I'll, yeah. I'll write that down. So I wrote the song for her, you know, and I met uh, some theologian, and he said, you know, Kaiser of Germany uh, got in a lot of trouble with that because he put himself before Jesus, you know, and me and Jesus. You me first and Jesus. Right. I said, and that was my mother's favorite expression. Right. I'm quoting her on that, and I'm not going to argue with my mother. If that suited her, it suited me fine. <laughs> but I... I never understood, uh, you know, I grew up in the church, so I was around it all the time, and I heard different views, and my father and all of his brethren uh, would sit on the porch, and I was a little kid sitting there, and hear him arguing about the Bible, you know. Right. I was kind of fascinated by it. I didn't know what they were talking about, but right. uh, my father wouldn't let me sing in church. He said, son, there's a little too much Hank and Lefty in there. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the church and they're arguing about, about the Bible, you know, and I thought, well, hell, they just got this one book. It seems to me, you know, they could, they could why don't they understand what the other one was reading, you know? So right, right. I found out later the, the reason for that, but um, I I kind of invented my own religion, uh, and there are a few. I've got a few disciples, you know, two or three. <laughs> Some of them are dead. I hope they're in heaven. <laughs> uh, but uh, I never, I never could get a hold of the concept that there's got to be some place between you and God. You know, I don't know who assigned that guy to get in there, or that gal to get in the middle there. I don't know why you can't get up in the morning and just talk to God yourself. Right. I mean, it's a stupid idea. I know that. And it's not, you're not supposed to do it. Is it a sin? I don't know. Hmm. But that's the way I always did it, you know. Yeah. I just say, thank you, Lord. It's a beautiful day. It's wonderful out here. And somebody grabs me the shoulder and says, you quit talking to God. You go through me. I'll tell you what to say. <laughs> I say, well, you go to hell. <laughs> I meant that literally. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So I kind of invented my own religion. And I also, I'm not terribly fond of human beings. I hate to say that, but this is the most, a human being is the most screwed up, warlike, hateful, bitter, angry creature on the planet, mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I've got uh, on this place, my farm here, I've got chicken, I've got coyotes, Right. I've got ducks, I've got geese, I've got wild turkeys, and I never see them at war. They're not out trying to kill each other, you know, hmm. unless one, the coyotes are trying to eat the chickens, but that's nature's way. <laughs> right. But human beings are just, 
And, and you know, we kill more people if we, in the, under the guise of religion than we do for any other cause. Mm. And now it's worse than it's ever been. Yeah. So I kind of, I'm not telling anybody to listen to anything I say, but I'm telling you, I, I think, and I don't know what God's up to, and nobody does. They have beliefs, but you got to make a distinction between what you know and what you believe, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, it's just me, but I think it would have been a better idea to cre create the whole planet for bluebirds. <laughs> I love bluebirds, and I've got, I'll build boxes for them and put them all over the place, and they don't cause any trouble, and they don't fight and everything. Right. And they're the prettiest thing I ever see every morning. So. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. my idea. Yeah, yeah. But I got, you know, everybody's entitled to their own religion. If you're not entitled to your own religion, you're not entitled to anything. Hmm. Because it's all in your mind anyway. Hmm. You know? So that's, that's how dumb I am. <laughs> but, you know, I'm happy. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if God loves me or not, but I know one thing for certain: He likes me a lot. <laughs> so you can make what you will of that. <laughs> well, you said you love bluebirds. Yeah. Uh, we know from your big number one hit from 1973 that you love some other things too. Oh, I love yeah. a, a major hit, um, also number twelve on the Billboard Pop Chart as well. So yeah. the, that crossover again, huge song, popular song. Kisses from a child, tomatoes on the vine, and onions. I love winners when they cry, losers when they try, music when it's good, and life. And I In 2015, Bob Dylan kind of went after you and went after that song a little bit in the speech that he gave at the Grammy Music Cares thing and kind of made some disparaging remarks about that, that song. And then he said something about, you know, Tom T. Hall and a few other writers were kind of the, the, the whole Nashville thing was in a box and you had to go through those guys if you wanted to get a song. Kind of this idea that somehow you were a gatekeeper somehow of, of Nashville and it kind of seemed to come out of, out of nowhere. What, what was your reaction when you heard about that? I think that's exactly where it came from. Hmm. I don't know Bob Dylan. I didn't know he knew me. I was a little surprised. Huh. Uh, I have no idea what he was thinking or, but I do have this one bit of it. I don't give a lot of advice to people. And most of the time I tell people, uh, let me give you some advice. Don't take my advice. <laughs> my, I said, don't, don't listen to a damn thing I tell you because I don't know what I'm talking about half the time. Right. And, uh, but we should not give old songwriters and old entertainers a microphone unless they're going to sing in them. You know, <laughs> that, that ought to be a general rule. But they didn't do that and you know, Bob, Bob, I don't know, he might have had a bad dream or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know him. I never met him. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. I like some of his songs. Yeah. You know, uh, 
like everybody else, you know. So that was not a, a you know, we lived in two totally different worlds. You know, he lived in New York, I lived in Nashville. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, huh. uh, God bless Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's a good person. Yeah. Well, you released three singles in 1974 that hit the top of the charts, including That Song is Driving Me Crazy and Country Is. Um, the third one of those number one singles was I Care, which came from the 1974 children's album uh, Songs of Fox Hollow. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to, to write a children's album at the height of your commercial popularity? I don't know. Uh, Kennedy, Jerry Kennedy used to tell me, he said, you know that Tom T said the problem... If we've got a problem, we were selling a lot of records and doing all right. But he said, every time you make a record, it's a new career. He said, you never, <laughs> you never record the same thing. Right. <laughs> well, let's get in a groove here. And I said, you know, a groove is a rut. Another right. word for a groove is rut. You know. And I, and there was some guys in Nashville make the same record over and over and over and over and just kept selling them. You know, I don't know what that was about. Right. But I just, you know. Being a songwriter, you change careers every time you make a record, I guess. But hmm. Anyway, I, uh, I wrote I Love. It sort of changed my life because the business kind of changed. All of a sudden, I'm selling, you know, a couple million records, you know, and ooh, that's a good idea. And so I think they kind of changed the record company. Mercury kind of changed the direction I was going hmm. and tried to turn me into, you know, they wanted another I Love and I Care, you know. Right. And, yeah, I didn't want any more homecomings, and I was still writing them, but yeah, that, that changed a little bit in there. I'm not blaming them; they're in business, you know. Right, right. But I'm a poet, you know. I stay out of business. Hmm. Uh, the main thing you don't do, poets don't get in business, you know. So. <laughs> I, don't get in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, in the mid '70s, you had several more major hits, including uh, The Deal, I Like Beer, Faster Horses, Your Man Loves You Honey, um, which was your last charting Mercury single of the 70s. By this point, you weren't just a poet and just a songwriter or just a singer. You were a a star. You were a a celebrity. Um, And with being a star, obviously, come certain pressures and and demands. on your time and on your energy and you're, you're traveling and you're, you're doing interviews and you're doing all these things as your success as an artist really increased. What effect did that have on the amount of, of time that you were available to just focus on simply writing songs? Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, songwriting kind of came natural and I guess I always did it and just enforce a habit if nothing else. But, uh, I didn't, uh, there's a funny thing about my career, I didn't know I was a star until I had been retired for about five years hmm. and started reading some of my own history, you know, whatever. I never felt like a star, you know. Uh, actually, I didn't have an entertainer's mentality either. I, I got away with it and I did good, you know, I traveled all over. And, was invited back, had huge crowds, and made a lot of money and everything. And, yeah. But uh, I never got the feeling I was a celebrity because, you know, I always had this to come back to, you know. I got 60 yeah. acres here. 
Yeah, yeah. And I can pee in the backyard. That's why I'm living out in the country. So. <laughs> right. You were able to kind of shut all those, all that noise out. A little yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. And I had, I did on occasion. I didn't know what was going on, but I'd get a call from my agent, and they'd say, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm building a fence." You know, building a fence. He said, "You realize you're one of the hardest artists in America, and you, you can hire people to build fences." Huh. I said, man, I love building fences. Nothing looks better than a straight fence, you know. Right. And it also keeps the cows off the road. <laughs> and, he, and I couldn't understand what he meant by, I don't know if I was supposed to dress up in rhinestone and walk around Broadway downtown. I don't know what that's about. Right, right. I was not a good celebrity. Right. You, know? you were just being you. Well, yeah, I didn't have any options. <laughs> right, know? right. Um, I got a lot of attention, but uh, yeah. the entertainer types, and I'm not one of them, I'm just saying that, and I'm not being humble or anything, you know, but America is a very polite society, and if you walk out on stage and you sing a song, well, they're going to give you a nice hand, you know, this is America, you know, they're polite, wonderful people, and... Uh, but a lot of people will go out there and sing a song and they'll get a nice round of applause. Mm -hmm. And to them, it sounds like a standing ovation, you know what I mean? Right. It's a mental thing. They stay and do another 30 minutes. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always thought when people were applauding, they were being nice to me. <laughs> you know? I, that's the way I took it. And so yeah. I yeah. would thank them for being nice to me and get on the bus and leave. But I didn't expect all of them to follow me home, you know. <laughs> right. And they didn't. Well, yeah. a few did, yeah. You know. <laughs> right. Um, well, you had seven top 20 singles on RCA between 1977 and 1979, including May the Force Be With You Always, What Have You Got to Lose, and You Show Me Your Heart and I'll Show You Mine. Um, you left our, you had that RCA period that was moderately successful. You went back to, to Mercury for a while. But in the 80s, you sort of began winding down, pulling back from... Yeah, from the I, uh, uh, I was on Mercury Records, and my career had started to dwindle, and I understood it. I, I never re, you know, regretted it or anything. Uh, you know, like baseball players who play, and they go through their prime, and then they go to Canada and play for a year, and then they go to Japan and play a couple of years, and they never quit, you know, yeah. never stop. Yeah. So I thought, uh, I had a, I woke up one morning and I said, you know, my career is dying. And uh, my contract is up with Mercury. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of like to die on a major label. <laughs> so I moved over to RCA Victor. But Jerry Kennedy didn't go with me and I got over there and uh, Roy Day, my producer, uh, quit as soon as I got there. and. I'm over there, and they're bringing me songs to record. And I said, hey, I'm a songwriter. And, right. You know, I send songs out. I don't take songs in. You know, right. I like them, but I don't need songs. Yeah. So there was a little disruption there. And they didn't, they didn't market me much, and maybe I didn't deserve it. But anyway, I did have the good sense to quit when my career was over, you know. Hmm. When I was through with show business, I, I stopped doing it. Was there any was there any moment that sort of made you feel like it was the right time, or was it just a gradual? Oh, I could just you know I wasn't being played on the radio much. I wasn't selling records, and uh, 
And actually, the music got very loud right at that same time. Yeah. And I wear a hearing aid, and I'm about half deaf. I've been listening to myself sing for 60 years, <laughs> but uh, which explains that. <laughs> but uh, the music got very loud, and uh, I don't know. I did, I never liked loud music. You know, it, it's like. You know, Abraham Lincoln said vulgarity is a crutch for a conversational cripple. Hmm. And volume is a crutch for people who can't pick. Huh. They're playing so loud you don't know whether they're in tune or not, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, but I took some tours with, uh, quote, the hat, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I was the old part on the tour, I guess, for <laughs> some reason. And, uh... I did, I did a few shows where I was on stage for 45 minutes and never heard anything I said or did. Huh. And I get back on the bus and it strikes me as odd. I said, how do they do this, you know? Hmm. Who's listening, you know? They can't hear anything at this volume. Right. And I got off that tour and I parked the bus and yeah. stayed home. Yeah. So I, I got out as gracefully as I could because I had people working for me that I didn't want to unemploy. and. Right, sure. I did a few tours of Australia and New Zealand. The volume hadn't gotten there yet. <laughs> right. So I was chasing the sound level around the planet. And <laughs> yeah. Ireland. Well, I love to work Ireland. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting, even as you were kind of starting that winding down process, you know, George Jones had this major hit with I'm Not Ready Yet, um, which you had previously recorded at, at RCA. Um so you have the sort of George Jones era of guys cutting your songs, but you mentioned the the hat acts. You know, Alan Jackson had a number one with your song Little Bitty. Oh, it's all right to be a little bitty, a little hometown or a big old city. Might as well share, might as well smile. Life goes on for a little bitty while. So even as the, as you say, the volume, the, the package changed. Yeah. But there's still an ear for these Tom T. Hall songs that, that eras change, tastes change, but there's something about being a songwriter, um, creating songs that can work in different eras with different production styles. Um, and at the end of the day, it comes down to the song. That's the core of, of what country music, what all music is. Yeah. Um, but of all these songs that, that folks have, have, recorded of yours there's there's one i i gotta ask you about before we go um new moon over jamaica johnny cash uh recorded that one a song that you wrote with johnny and a fellow named paul mccartney yeah now yeah. I, I mean this sounds like a a song for someone who's a fan of songwriters thinking of tom t hall and johnny cash and paul mccartney writing a song together is like a, like a all-star team. I'd love to hear about how that came together. Uh, well, John had a house in Jamaica, and my wife and I used to go down there with John and June and hang out in Jamaica. And uh, uh, We were there one time when Paul McCartney showed up. And for some strange reason, uh, John was in show business, and I was, and neither one of us had a guitar. So McCartney <laughs> shows up on the back porch at John's great house there in Jamaica, and he was the only one who had a guitar, and it was left-handed. Hmm, right. He's the only guy who could play it, you know. So. Right. 
So I, I'll take credit for this. I said, gentlemen, we're songwriters, and there's a new moon over Jamaica. Let's write a song about it. There's a new moon over Jamaica. And a uh, new love storm. I don't know what, how it goes. <laughs> and uh, John wrote a verse, and I wrote a verse. And then... There's a new moon over Jamaica. And a new year just got here, you see. There's a new moon over Jamaica. And I'm living with an old memory. And then we wrote another song. John had an idea, so let's write a song. He said, let's kiss the ladies goodnight. And I guess McCartney or somebody said, let's write that. And we wrote another song. Let's kiss the ladies goodnight. And uh, it was a fun time. McCartney's a nice guy. Yeah. He and I are vegetarians, you know. Hmm. So uh, we'd be hanging out together. We could we could eat out of the same plate, you know. And, <laughs> right, so. right. Something in common there. He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, following this career as a very successful country songwriter and, and, and artist, um, you kind of reinvented yourself in this new strain when you and your wife, Miss Dixie, were named Songwriter of the Year for 10 consecutive years by the Society for the Preservation of Bluegrass Music of America. Kind of became this bluegrass songwriting legend. Um, talk about how you got involved in, in bluegrass music and specifically how, you know, you'd written most of your hits and everything by yourself. And now yeah. you and your wife are, are working together, writing songs together. Talk about that dynamic and, and what that was like to kind of shift over from from being the solo guy to now you're you're collaborating with your wife well uh when i retired and came off the road my wife miss dixie uh was uh head of the uh humane association here she had a she had a uh, a complex out there called animal land which was, she raised about a million dollars for that charity, and uh, and uh, was president, of course, and and uh, that's what she did when I was on the road. She had her show dogs and her charities and things, and and uh, I came in off the road, and I wound up working for Animal Land. Right. Yeah, you know, and I got my tractor out and my truck, and I'm hauling things around, and I said, "Whoa, this is no." I'm retired. This wasn't how I thought it was going to go. All <laughs> right. But I'm, I'm, our closet music in those days was bluegrass music. We both loved bluegrass music. Uh, and she, you know, when she came to Nashville, she stayed with Mother Maybell Carter, you know. The, wow. You know, matriarch of country, country music, I guess. Yeah. And uh, she, she just loved... Uh, acoustic music and bluegrass music so and she was a good songwriter because I met her at a BMI awards dinner where she had the A side of the record and got a BMI award now I got the B side yeah so she kicked my ass the first night I met her you know this <laughs> and uh, so I retired so one day I said uh, I left her a note I've got it in there it's on a yellow leaf I brought her some coffee in the morning I made the coffee and I brought her a note. I said, if you'll retire, we'll write songs together. Because I knew she loved to write songs. And I was trying to get her, yeah. you know, get, I was trying to get me out of the, uh, <laughs> being the boy at the 
this humane association. Right. Then uh, next morning she brought me copies. She said, if we write songs together, I'm out of here. <laughs> so we started, uh, we built a little acoustic music studio. Huh. And we built, uh, she started the publishing company, the record company. And now she's the most recorded bluegrass female songwriter in history. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And all, I've taken care to make sure that all of her, everything she had related to her career are in different museums, you know. Yeah. And well, she didn't want her stuff to wind up on eBay, so I've spent a year and a half finding, you know, the homes of perpetuity in these museums. Yeah, yeah. Looking after the legacy. Yes, looking after her legacy. When, yeah. After she passed away, I had no life at all. And I'm still not very good at it, but I'm up breathing and walking around, so. Yeah. You still writing songs? No, no, I don't pick up guitar much anymore. No? You just don't, don't feel, I don't know what that is. Hmm. But, uh, uh, it's not something I miss a lot, like working on the road. Yeah. I never regretted it. I quit the road. You know, I have this, uh, if I have a little recollection of being on the road, I'm somewhere in Michigan at, on the 10th floor of a hotel looking down at a tour bus covered in dirty snow. Hmm. That's my recollection of traveling on the road. Right. And that bus is dark and damp and sitting out there in the snow and I'm I know my way around a holiday inn. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got off the road, you came back to your beautiful home. I thank you very much for welcoming me here today. This is an amazing place you got, and I really appreciate your time. This has been really great. Well, Scott, we could uh, talk a long time and tell a lot of stories from the places we've been. I appreciate your time, uh, letting me tell my story, and... Uh, and I want to close out with another qualification. I'm not up to anything. I've had a good life, and uh, and uh, I'm not, I don't I'm not an expert in anything, and I don't have any agenda to push. And uh, so, if I've said anything that I was that I was uh, inaccurate in saying. Uh, I would uh, I'd consider it a blessing to be corrected because that's the only way you can learn anything, hmm. just to get the facts. Yeah. So I'll leave you with that. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, slow-moving trains.